Welcome to another episode of Frame of Reference, Salt County and Beyond. And we are continuing our Beyond Factor here, folks. So, um, and I, I'm excited. I've been excited about the the uh, few last few guests that we've had on the show, uh, particularly. And it, it is due to my guest today, who is the founder of the organization that has been routing these people to me, uh, an organization called Command Your Brand. And my guest is none other than the president, great. Uh, great exalted one and grand poobah of Command Your Brand. He, well, actually, probably your wife is, right? Brielle is probably the grand exalted poobah. You're just... No, well, it's, in, in, in all things home, yes. Um, in all things business, no. Okay. <laughs> she, 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 does, she does operations where I'm more as like the executive function. Okay, excellent. Well, this is none other than Jeremy Ryan Slate. Jeremy, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for taking the time for that. I appreciate it. So, Thank you, man. You call me call me Grand Poobah. I feel like I got to give you a yabba dabba do or something. Well, something like that. Yeah, I mean that would only be appropriate. So, but uh, loyal, loyal, loyal order water, uh, loyal order water buffalo. Yeah, man. you know I was watching uh, Beverly Hillbillies the other day, and I remembered they have the billiards room. If you've ever watched that show, and it, oh, yeah, because yeah, they yeah. have that big animal on the wall, I said we can't figure out what that is, but we think it's a billiard. So, yeah. like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so uh, Jeremy, I, I read a bit about your background. You uh, st- had your well, you still have create your own life podcast which is really yeah. uh designed towards making people like ex- that are think they're just ordinary helping them to find what it is that will make them extraordinary and go for it essentially but um i'm, I'm you're the uh, guests that you've had on that show are everybody from uh tom brady not now that tom brady wasn't on it but well, you talk nice. about tom that'd be nice right <laughs> he's coming though i bet you he's coming so but uh well, four charts in- time on his hands now <laughs> Exactly. So now that he's not doing that football thing anymore, gosh. Uh, but you know, you've entered, uh, interviewed everyone from four-star generals to CIA directors. So, uh, which I can only imagine how fun that must be. But uh, you and your wife founded uh, Brielle founded Command Your Brand to help visionary founders use the power of uh, a podcast to change the world. I thought what was particularly interesting to me too is that you now live in New Jersey and that you raise chickens in our former. Competitive um, power lifter, right? We have we have two dozen chickens. Um, we just and and we just got our second rooster too. Because um, when you have like like the one rooster we have, you starting to get a little bit aggressive now. Because what happens is like if they kind of got this big pack of ladies and like they don't have any competition, they start to kind of feel their oats a little bit, and he's kind of got started going after humans. Okay. So we got a second rooster. So now like because they're usually good for about eight chickens on their own. So now they'll, they'll kind of compete a little bit, which would be good. Sure. Um, and he'll calm down and stop going after us. <laughs> <laughs> One hopes at least. Right. So come on, chicken, get in line past. here. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh but, it, but everything's like that. Right. And it's, if it's not chickens, it's uh, politicians, I guess they're, they're yeah. kind of all over the place, but yeah, a good place to put that man is at the bottom of the ocean. But what do you <laughs> 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 that works for me. Concrete boots all around. So, so we're, as we always do, Jeremy, we're going to start out with my favorite things at part of our our podcast. So I just like to. This is completely Gestaltian. Don't don't think a whole lot about this. If you have to, you have to. But uh, try to have it be what just comes genuinely from Jeremy Ryan Slate's heart and soul. All right, these are really probing too. So first one is favorite food. Oh, can I do it more Rorschach than Gestalt? No. 
Uh, <laughs> no, you have to do the whole, because you have to take the whole picture of things, right? Can I give you so, the ink blot in front yeah, of you? Yeah. Well, um, Rorschach so is fine, though, too. That's right. So you have to be from New Jersey to understand this, but okay. Taylor Ham, and you have to be from northern New Jersey, by the way. So oh. in southern New Jersey, you'd call it something else. Okay. In northern New Jersey, it's called a Taylor Ham egg and cheese. In southern New Jersey, it's called a pork roll egg and cheese. Interesting. And what is in a Taylor Ham and egg and cheese? Um, in other places, they call it Canadian bacon, okay. but it's this uh, like round ham, and you get a stack of that with a nice scrambled egg on it, toasted hard roll uh, with some nice uh, American or cheddar cheese on it, and then they call it SPK, which is salt, pepper, ketchup. It is beautiful. <laughs> that sounds like something we should have in Wisconsin, because then it could have Wisconsin cheese on it too. I, you know, well, I, I gotta get out to Wisconsin though soon, though, man. Yeah, I, I do own one share of the Green Bay Packers, man. Okay. So I got I gotta get out to, get out to Lambo. Yeah, that, that, well, there's the the deal too. I, I'll tell you when they called the Dallas Cowboys America's team. I always just want to stop them dead in their tracks and say, "Hey, whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> Green Packers are the only Green Bay Packers are the only ones still owned by the people." Okay, so that's if correct. anybody is America's, <laughs> that that's the Green Bay Packers. So, how about a favorite quote? You have a favorite quote? Favorite quote? Um, it's a quote by Vince Lombardi, okay. and um, I think this was um, this was actually during the period he was it was it was when he was with Green Bay. It wasn't when he was with New York. And I'm going to paraphrase this. I hope I don't screw it up. Um, that we are going to endlessly, uh, we are going to endlessly chase perfection, knowing that perfection is not possible. And in that chase, we will catch. Um, what is it? We will chase perfection, and in that, we will catch excellence. Right? Because you can't be perfect. So yeah, really. Excellent. Well, I, I apologize to the the estate of Vince Lombardi. That I totally butchered that thing. Well, and you know that there are some folks out there right now going, "That's not quite right." So yes, yeah, well, that's okay. They're the ones that are, I, I guess, uh, perfection, uh, or the rest of us are just striving for excellence. That actually fits a lot of your mantra, doesn't it? That that uh, mm-hmm. saying that sounds foundational to me, almost for who you've become. Is that true? Yeah, I well, I think so because I think like you. I'm a big believer. I don't know about you, but I'm a big believer in hard work and life skills. Yep. And yep. I think like you have to work and work and work and work at something, even though you kind of stink sometimes. Yep. And, you know, you, you only get better by doing something, right? right? Like it's the old phrase of how to get to Carnegie Hall, but practice, practice, practice. And right. Like, that's how life is, right? If you right. want to be the best at something, you got to keep doing it. You got to keep working. You got to keep improving. Right. And so like, right. that's always how I've looked at things. I'm a big believer in doing, um, like, sure. I've, I've studied a lot and done whatever, but I actually learned more by by implementing and trying to figure things out. Sure. Well, you even talk about that, right? Your dad was one of the hardest working people you ever have known, right? So yeah. that's the, I think that's a quality that we do kind of grow up and around um, or we don't learn it at all. And I, I, I had to laugh. One of the comments made about participation awards, that life is not yes. about participation awards. And I've always thought those were like one of the worst ideas anyone ever came up with because it's not it's enough to so participate. It's so weird, man. Yeah. Isn't it's it? So- it's so weird because like I like so I, I grew up in the mid 80s. Right. So like I think the world's gotten to be like a lot different then. And like, um, you know, my dad played professional baseball um, and he didn't quite get up to the majors. But, you know, like you either won or you lost. Right. That's right. how it is in the world. And I think that's how the how the real life is. But they started doing this thing when I was younger where. All right, the whole te- the whole baseball team gets a trophy. It's like, but we didn't we didn't win anything. Like, right. well, what is the point? Because there's big value in losing if you can take a look at that, figure out why you lost. You can take that thing and improve on that thing and get better. Like, but if we're not doing that, like, there's there's no value in it. Am I right? Right, right. I I totally agree. Well, and not to mention there is huge value in losing in that. 
um, you know, just because you lose doesn't make you a loser, you know, yes. and that's where we somehow thought that it was something to do with our self-esteem. And in, in reality, if there's anything that comes out of that process, it's improving your self-esteem through improving yourself. I, I mean, I don't yes. quite get that. Uh, yeah, I'm not a big believer in the whole self-esteem thing because like it's, yeah. it started being like, I remember my parents talking about it when I was younger, like it wasn't really a thing until I was like five or six. And then it kind of became like the hip thing to talk about. Yeah. And if you look at it, like production is the basis of morale, right? So if you're doing something and you're working at something, you're going to feel good, right? Like, and I think too often we want to feel good just because we are. And it's like, well, hmm. y- you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I-, I think yeah, a lot of times yeah. self-esteem is earned, man. Yeah. I wonder if maybe we need a different term for it too. Like I've always thought of myself as kind of a work in progress. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, I direct a lot of plays, right. And when you direct a play, I mean, you start out sucking. It just, it does, you know, the first time the cast is together and they're reading the script and they have no idea what they're reading. They have no idea what the character's about, you know, they're, and they're, they're learning. And then you get to all that production time and all that investment and energy trying to bring it all together. And then he, I'm, I can't watch the, the show when it's actually up and running, it's really hard for mm-hmm. me to watch the show at that point. Cause I know it's not going to get any better really. You know, it's now exactly. hit the end and I, I keep seeing the things. I can't that, listen to my voice recorded after the fact. Oh, isn't that work? You know? So it's like one of those things where you just sit back and go, geez, I, you know, I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. All that jazz. So how about a favorite book? You have a favorite book. Oh, there's been so many, man. Um, the one that's coming to me right now is Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Um, okay. I don't know if you ever read Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. Um, yeah. Long time ago. And, but. uh, you know, you kind of need a long attention span if you're going to read that one. I think it's like <laughs> 1400 pages or something like that. But I, I think it, it is, it, it shows you what happens when, you know, you start rewarding non-producers mm-hmm. like, you know, kind of what we've been talking about here, what happens to society and you, you kind of, you know, bastardize and kind of get rid of the idea of achievement. Well, then the achievers just say, well, we're leaving. Right. So like, you know, that, to me, that I think there's a lot of value in that. Sure. Well, isn't it interesting? I, I keep thinking about that, the, the non-producers uh, quality. It, it strikes me that part of our, maybe part of our problem with non-producing as a, a concept is that we don't realize that is more than just producing, uh, you know, a monet, monetizing it. It's it's right. well you can create value in so many ways. Right, right. So having people figure out a way to create that value and realize that it's not just about me and what makes me happy, that it's there are there's a lot to doing what's good for all of us around, right? So Yeah, because I think when you when you look at it, like there's value could be created in so many ways, but um th- there's there's a couple of viewpoints on this, right? Like when you look at it, there's the person that says, Okay, I'm gonna help myself and others survive better, right? And I think that's the right viewpoint to have. There's the other viewpoint that says please help me survive. And I think when you look at it, that's a really dangerous viewpoint because it doesn't add to society and it takes away from others that are, that are trying to help others, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I have quite a few people in my life that are in that. It's it's energy sucking too, which is problematic. So how about a favorite bird? Favorite bird. Um, well, I'm going to have to go with the Easter egg or chicken. Easter egg or chicken. Okay. Which you probably they lay, have. One they or... lay bright blue eggs. I have three of them. Okay. Bright blue eggs, huh? So probably it's easy at Easter time. You don't have to worry about coloring those, right? So It's funny though. And I don't know why it is, but like, and I, I always have this running joke with my mother-in-law, like Easter egg or chickens for sometimes they have a tendency to try to hide their own eggs. 
So I was like, wow, their exit are already colored and hide themselves. You just got to hope you find them so they don't go bad. <laughs> well, they're, they're probably going around going, these are very special eggs. I don't want just anyone to go turn them into some Jersey omelet or something. That would be awful. So I get it. How about, do you have a favorite uh, personality? Is there, a, do you have an uh, I guess an idol. You've talked about several people that you admire a lot or, uh, that you've met over time, but is there someone that really epitomizes the qualities that you find are very admirable, uh, emulatable, if that's a word? Well, if you want somebody that gets stuff done, I'd say George S. Patton, but I don't know how much fun he was able to hang out with at family time. Um, <laughs> Especially you know, like, if you were a soldier that had shell shock. That's not a good yeah. idea. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I guess if you had to look at it, that's tough. Because I think if you look at somebody like like Martin Luther King, like I think the thing that's cool about him is, you know, they put him in prison. They did all these things to him. They um, and even, you know, people in his own movement tried to take what he had and twisted it. He just wanted everybody to do to do better, do better because they were adding value to society. I think that is extremely admirable. Okay. Well, and you talk quite a bit about that adversity being something we need to embrace rather than something we need to, I'm not doing well, my life is so hard. Yeah, that's just, a, <laughs> that's a bad hole to go down. So how about, do you have a favorite place that you like to go to? Favorite place? Uh, Budapest, Hungary was one of my favorite cities. I actually, we stayed in a boat hotel on the Danube, which was incredible. Okay. Um, and, uh, I love Budapest. Hungary was, was great. Um, we, we've been a whole bunch of places in Europe. It's Budapest was my favorite though. Okay. I've heard a lot of excellent things about Budapest. There's, uh, there's something about the city just has a incredible amount of beauty to it. Uh, it's interesting too. Cause like, so the Danube goes through the middle of the city, the Danube, the Danube river, right. and they call it Budapest, but it's actually two cities. One side is Buda and the other side is Pest. Uh, um, and uh, together they're Budapest. Okay. And, um, and um, there's also in on the, the Buddha side, there is the largest natural hot springs um, in the world, which is really cool. Um, so it's just it's a very cool place. Excellent. OK, last question. Then we get to move on to the, the meat of the interview. Um, a favorite memory that you have from childhood, something that maybe you think about that just makes you feel um, puts you in a better place or, you know, something that you uh, – you have a, I don't so know, I, I think one, of the things that you run across and you go, oh, yeah, that I remember that now. So it was this one particular time uh, playing catch with my dad in the backyard of our house. Okay. Uh, my, dad was a, my dad was a pitcher. Okay. Um, and my dad used to throw like a high 90s fastball. Um, and he used to throw really? this curveball that was like, really? he used to throw this curveball, they, which they call a 12 to 6. So it would come out and you go, Voop, and it would just drop. So he's playing catch with a 10-year-old and throwing it as hard as he possibly can. Um, and, uh, I just, to me, that was just exhilarating trying to catch it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, talk about having to learn how to, you know, <laughs> succeed. So, well, that's like, you know, you, you know, I forget which chess master it was that, um, remember him talking about, he would play with children. He would just demolish them and, you know, people, people would just sit back and go, my God, you're why are you doing that to the children? It's just like, they have to learn to play better. That, you know, I'm, yes. I'm making you're them. You're doing them a disservice by not making them play better. Right. You know, hundred percent. Right. My wife used to give me a hard time for beating our son at chess, and I'm not, by no means a phenomenal chess player, but she's like, why don't you let him win? I'm like, I'm not letting anyone win, okay? I'm sorry. I, when he, I remember the first the, the first time my dad always used to be faster than me running, and I remember when he got into his like mid mid to late 40s, it was the first time I finally beat him running, <laughs> and I looked at him and goes, looks like he got old, dad. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, right. Took you home, whooped you. Then that's a, that's the point where you know I'm still your dad, boy. So, but all right. So, Jeremy, uh, you have a phenomenal story. I think, uh, and it's a, a story that needs to be heard. And I'm I'm so glad that you have the podcast that you have with the followership you have. Um, and I I have to say another where a place where I've really identified with you is in your desire to have meaningful conversations with people. Um, personally, what I found is that uh, that's difficult to find a listenership for. It's, it's a difficult thing to find an audience for because it seems, to me at least, that we have, a, have really uh, cultivated, uh, I largely put this on the media's shoulders, we have largely cultivated an audience of people that want other people to do the thinking for them. They just want to be able to sign on for the ride. Um, and that to me is so dangerous and so mm -hmm. divisive, polarizing, stupid, which makes sense. Um, but how do you find that you're turning that around or moving the needle? Is that, uh, how do you deal with well, that? I I guess the part of it is like we didn't start there, right? I think I think often it can be hard to start in places that really matter, but you have to start somewhere. So we started with what interested us, you know, what interested and what helped people, which a lot of it was where I started, you know, trying to figure out a business that worked, trying to do different things that 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 worked. And, you know, as I've grown and matured, you know, the show has grown and matured. Like I'm very different um, at almost 40 um, than I was at, at 20 when I started this. Sure, thing. sure. And which is four years I'm going to be 40, which is kind of wild to me. But, um, you know, I, I look at it. <laughs> Wait till you get to 60. Things. That's that's where it really starts. And you <laughs> well, feel 24 inside. That's my dad's uh, going to be 70 next year. It's it's uh, wild, man. But, like, you you look at it, and the things that matter to me in my my late 30s are actually the things, the things that matter the most in life. Like, how is the family doing? What are the things that matter politically? Um, you know, how do we get along? How do we figure out these different things? And I think the thing you find is when you have these conversations from kind of less of a polarizing vantage point, and because, you know what I mean, you have, you have people on the far right and people on the far left, and they're the loudest ones, and they just want to shout whatever it is. And you find most of the people actually somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. And I think when you can find out how to communicate to those people and have conversations where you're not bad-mouthing, where you're not calling names, where you're trying to do things that are thoughtful, and you can say, well, you know, I don't agree with you, but I respect you. Mm -hmm. And I think when we can get better at that, that's to me, that's where I started to hit my sweet spot and more people started to be attracted to the message that I wanted to have. But I didn't start there. I had to grow there. Sure. Yeah. And it, there's something, uh, I think it's a, uh, I'm paraphrasing this, but there's a phrase from Emerson um, that my dad Ooh, used to I'm, re I'm related to him, by the way. Oh, okay. Really? How so? <laughs> my, 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 on my mom's side, my mom's maiden name was Emerson, so my first child's name is Emerson. Well, the first time <laughs> I've ever met somebody related to Ralph Waldo Emerson. This yes. is this is a banner day for me, let me tell you, Jeremy. So, and my dad used to carry this little thing that he had typed up on a typewriter and just had it folded up and kept there. Um, and I, I have not, for the life of me, been able to find this actually in writing. But as I remember it, the saying was, uh, the, the vehemence of my opponent's argument convinces me that I am perhaps a little bit wrong, and he is perhaps a little bit right. So and I've always thought that's just, that's the way I really have tried to approach a lot of things in life is you don't get anywhere by yelling at someone. You get somewhere by understanding someone that doesn't agree with you. Um, and that's where I really, really hold our politicians and our media responsible right now is they are trying to find the biggest conflict and monetize it. 
Yeah, and it's just like I think to me that's why legacy media and traditional media is dying because people don't people don't want that anymore. And then like you know, it's like I'm it's and not if you're for or against him, but whatever. Just as an example, you look at somebody like you know Tucker Carlson moving off of TV and he's on Twitter now, and the guy got seventy million views yesterday, right? So it's like you look at it like traditional media wants to scare us, wants to make us angry, wants to make us hate each other, wants to make us fight. Where if you look out into what's happening with what you and I are doing in, in, in kind of this new media world, like people are having real conversations and taking a look at issues and things that matter to our lives. And we're, we're not debasing each other. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Right. Right. Well, and we're not trying to demean each other. As you've said, there are p- plenty of people you've interviewed that you don't necessarily agree with, but you're, yeah. you'll fight to the death to be able to make sure they have their right to uh, disagree with you. You know, and that that's a difficult thing. We, it, someone that's out there listening, hopefully someone out there listening right now is going, I, I uh, uh, people are, are just stupid if they don't agree with me. Um, <laughs> I, I have really struggled with that, you know, especially I, I am in my sixties and I think of a lot of people that are my age are so stuck in their ways and in their biases. And I see that as such a I mean, what is your phrase from Mark Twain? Most people die at 27. It just takes till 72 for them to be buried. That to me is a death. You know, if you've let your biases so consume you that you can't consider there might be another belief system uh, or another reason to believe in something else, that, how do you counter that? How do you find yourself personally and professionally countering that? Well, I think there's two parts to that first. And like going back to that Mark Twain quote, um, like he's talking about people that have lost the ability to dream, right? Because like life has beaten you up or whatever it may be. And I think when you look at it, a man is, a, is, is as alive as he can dream. And I think once you can't do that anymore, you, 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 you become more bitter, you become more able to see, you know, the viewpoint of others as an interviewer, the hardest thing to learn, but the thing that has served me the most is learning to understand the viewpoint of the person sitting in front of you. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I think mm-hmm. or, or learning to ask questions from the viewpoint of the person listening to you, because so often we can ask questions because, well, that that's interesting to me. But it's like, OK, there are people listening to this. What are they trying to get out of that? Sure. And I think when you can learn how to realize that, number one, this is very hard for people. Number one, others exist and have viewpoints. Number two, how do those viewpoints have to do with what you're doing? Right. I think so often we're just stuck on us and what we want. And we have to understand that there's many different areas of our lives that we're a part of, right? There's yourself and your family. There's the groups you're a part of. There's mankind. There's, you know, the animal world that you're a part of. There's the physical world you're a part of. Like there's all these different things. And you have to look at what is an optimum solution, right? What is a solution that's good for each one, the most of these areas, right? Like something's not always going to be the best for all of them, but what is the thing that's the best for most of them? I think people really struggle with that. Right. Yeah, that whole what is it uh, Lincoln's quote about uh, you can't you can't please all the people all the time, nor you can can you please you can please some of the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't please all of the people all the time. Um, and that that's a I, I've I've struggled with that, you know, as someone that is used to getting an audience's applause, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You you want everybody to like you, you know. So, but you always see that's the hard. one guy that's in the audience that's not clapping, you know, or that has fallen asleep. That's the worst, you know. When you're on stage and there's some guy that's taking a nap in the middle of your trying to put this out there, um, but they they're there, and you, I, those are the ones you can want to take after the show and say, why why did you fall asleep? What, what was going on? But I, mean, I, I think like. 
something and this is once again, I'm, I'm giving all this advice, but it's, it's damn hard, um, like to do these things in action. But like, you know, one of the, the biggest things for me is when I stopped worrying about being liked or admired and just doing what I thought was right. Um, Boy, that was key. a game changer, right? Because yeah. it's, but when you do things to be liked or admired, you're doing things more from a place of ego and like what makes you feel good and what looks good. And sometimes the thing that looks good and feels good is the wrong thing and doing the right thing can be hard. So it's as hard as it may sound like doing things to not be liked or admired, um, is a lot lot often the right thing to do. What do you think gives people the right to determine what's right? You know, cause that, that seems to be a floating point uh, equation, right? Where, um, Mm -hmm. we, we have as a culture, as a nation, as a, you know, a species, uh, that's been a a floating point operation, right. As, As time's gone by. We're- That's tough because the, the thing, I guess the thing you have to look at is number one, you know, what is the, because frankly, there are some people that just don't even have a moral code, right? Like, like, like what is my moral code and what does that allow for? You know, and for some people it's coming from a Judeo Christian background. Um, for others they are coming at it from a different viewpoint. But I think if you're not starting there, it's very hard for you to define what's right or wrong, right? Because then you're saying, okay, well, what's right in this situation? It has to be some sort of moral code or some sort of code of honor attached to it. And if you don't have that, it's much harder to decide that. And then you have to look at, well, does this help more people than it hurts? Well, if it helps more people than it hurts, it's probably a good thing. But then you could also look at that and say, in some situations, it's still a really bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, if you don't have a moral code underlying it, that is a moral code that's agreed on by other people, right? Like it's 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 an agreed on moral code of the society, Um you know, that then you're in, you're in a rough position, but then you could also look at it. And, um, you gave the example of, uh, we were, we were talking about Augustus earlier. I don't know if we were recording or not yet. Yeah. He said, Oh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe Joseph Goebbels was, was looking at what Augustus was doing in terms of the, how he's using propaganda. Well, the accepted moral code in, in Germany in the, in the thirties and forties was probably not a very good thing to be a part of. So it is, it is a really difficult thing. And I think you have to look at, you know, how does this, it often comes from a religious viewpoint, I feel like, because you have to feel like that this affects more than just me and there is a higher power than me. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, be a Christian or be a Jew or be whatever it is. We have to think there's a higher power and there's some sort of morality involved in this. And that that seems to be one of the core issues that you run across in a, a lot of arenas is the assertion by some that there is no such thing as a higher power. There is no such thing as a true moral cord. What is right for me may be wrong for you. And we both are right in choosing those points of reference. Um, mm-hmm. That to me is a struggle. That that to me is, yes. that's one of the most difficult conversations for me to have with someone that is of that viewpoint. Because I my, my basis of it all is, you know, it takes as much faith. So let's talk about faith for just a moment. Because it takes mm-hmm. as much faith, if not more faith, for you to believe that than really it does for me to have the faith that I, because I can look around at the world and see flowers and see you know, all the wonderful creationary things that are here and think to myself, sure. it's ridiculous in my mind to think of that not being an intelligent design in some way. And yet, well, and that's people- what Thomas Aquinas talked about. Like Thomas Aquinas has what's called the, the 12 proofs of the existence of God. Yeah. And if you look at the fact that physical, the physical world exists and there's order to it is a, is a big, it doesn't just happen, man. Like it can't right. be an accident. Like right. there, there has to be more to it. Well, there has to be a certain amount of, I think in, in that frame of reference to use a title of a show that I think someone does. Anyways, the, the, the <laughs> your frame of reference, I think has to be pretty fractured to even get to a place where you just don't see any 
anything of of uh, order in the world around us. Gr- granted, there's a lot of chaos. I, I wouldn't oh, argue yeah. with anyone that there isn't. But you know, to not be able to focus on some order, some as you say, moral code that makes sense for the greatest number of people. Uh, that's and a- it's tough though because that could be such a gray area though too because it also like. You know, I think, frankly, um, up to this point in America, we've done a pretty darn good job in comparing to kind of past civilizations and things like that. But like at the same time, you can go to different countries or different eras in history and you can look at the moral code of that time and you're kind of like, yikes, that's very different than what I have. So I I, I think like having a, a moral code is part of it, but also like having a having, you know, as you we were mentioning, having some sort of a higher power is important, but also like you have to look at like what percentage of people is this good for? Right. And if it's, you're still only on 50, 50, I don't feel like that's good enough, man. It needs to be significantly better than that. And that's, that is the really, really tough thing because you look at like, you know, uh, in what happened in Rwanda or the Rwandan genocide, you know, you had the, the Hutus and the Tutsis and you had one, one part of, of the society was bigger than the other. So does that make what they were doing moral and right? No, it doesn't. And I think that's where it's really difficult to define, like, well, how do you handle those gray areas? Right. Because you can't have it's 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 accepted by everybody or it's accepted by nobody because there's going to be times where it's like, well, that's a really bad thing. And it's for a small group of people. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's it's such a a moral dilemma, I guess. Yeah. Oh, and you think about it, too. We're not used to the minority ruling. We're not used to the minority having something that the majority does need to listen to. So authoritarian governments oftentimes come into play and that sort of thing because they're going to say, well, no, you're you have to do this. And then I just think it's hard to take spirituality out of it, because I think Mm -hmm. when you look at that, I feel like that's what at least makes it better. Do you you, you know what I mean? I don't I don't know if I'm 100 percent right about that, but I think having a spiritual element is what makes it better. Right. Well, I, I don't think moral codes exist without personally. I don't think they exist without some understanding that there is some higher understanding to this than I'm capable of. And, and mm-hmm. when you hit it, I, I find it with art. You know, there, there are those things about art, about great music, about great literature that unify us. Um, they, they bring us together. And, uh, you know, if there's another reason why, you know, mainstream media is failing, it's because it's lost its ability and its desire to unify. They just want to, you know, get the minute by minutes and get those as high Divisive. as possible. Right. So, and you know, you're, you're catering, I don't care which side your Fox news or CNN, you're catering to your sponsorship, you know, and yes. uh, you kind of have to, cause otherwise you're not going to pay your newscasters salaries and everything else. So, but which by the way, like, I know like some of those guys make like 30 and $50 million just to sit and read a teleprompter. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Yeah, when you think about it, and then, you know, think of all the people. They don't even write it. They have writers. Right, exactly. (laughs) I mean, they just sit down and say it because you're who you are. Um, You know, I mean, it's it's phenomenal to me. Um, So what about education? How does education Mm -hmm. play into all this? I mean, are there, when you look back at your schooling, you know, having gone to Oxford, having gone to, um, you know, the, uh, when you did your graduate work, what was that at, um, I forget what school you were at for, Seton Hall University. Christine, yeah, there you go. Um, was, did you find in those environments that that prepared you for the kind of uh, thing that you're providing for people now? You know, you know what's difficult is I, I look at it and I find that the mental work of it was really good, right? Because you're you're like you're you're learning kind of the art of thinking, if that makes sense, and mm-hmm. the art of studying and the art of looking at things, and like. Mm-hmm. And I, this is coming from a viewpoint of I don't have the same education a lot of other people have. Like I studied the classics and rhetoric and things like that and, and logic. 
most people aren't studying those things. For me, there's value. There are some people that don't even know what they are. I, you know, right. But I'm saying there's there's so much value in a classical education. You get what I'm saying? Like in mm -hmm. having that information and having those viewpoints. Like I use that each and every day. But that doesn't mean it was able to. It was going to help me to go get some sort of a job when I got out. Yeah. Um. And and I think one of the things that's that's drastic and missing, um, is number one just like how our education system is set up. Like our our education system currently <clears throat> is run on the Austro-Hungarian model. Um, and that model um, during the Austro-Hungarian Empire was meant to turn out um, soldiers and tradesmen, um, most of which, you know, unless we have a standing military, we don't really have anymore. So I think when you when you look at it, it doesn't serve a purpose to somebody like starting a business or having an idea or implementing it or building a skill set. Like, so when, I think that we should be focusing more on classical education earlier, right, in like the, the grammar school, middle school type area. And then we should be looking at some sort of um, like apprenticeship type program. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you work in a trade for a bit or you work in a time area for a bit. And then you from there you would go to college if you really need to. Right. Like if you're a doctor, do not cut me open unless you got the right degrees, man, because we're going to have some problems. <laughs> but like or a lawyer or something like that. But I think but like, I really feel well, deep inside I'm a doctor. I just I feel it. So I have no, you're a doctor. It doesn't mean you can cut well, me open, man. I have three participation <laughs> awards for being in surgical you know, arenas. That makes me yeah. right. Yeah, but yeah. but do you get what I'm saying? Like, I feel like yeah. we, we've we've we're not preparing our kids to be able to do something. And we're, we're just telling them like, oh, you have this degree, you know, go get a job in women's studies or something. Now right. It's like, but who's hiring for that? Right. Like I have a master's degree in history. Like was I going to go work at a museum? Like what was I going to do with that? Like right. I, I think what we really have to take a look at is things that prepare kids for life, but also give them the right type of education and thought process. And there is no better education than the classics. And I'm talking about, you know, Herodotus. Uh, the, the the Roman and Greek history and things like that, American history, um, those things are really, really important language skills. But I think you only need so much of them, right? You don't need eight years, another four years, and then another four years because college to me has really just become like a second part of high school, mm -hmm. right? So like we're just mm -hmm. kind of revisiting high school. Now everybody's got a college degree. So if you really want to separate yourself, you need a, an MA or a PhD. And it's like, it, I just don't see the value in it where I think if you had some sort of an apprenticeship, you know, you have an applicable skill, you know, if you like something or don't like something. And if you don't go to college, you can just go do a trade. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that it just needs to change drastically. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm just not super happy with the system we have. <laughs> I have a, a professor years ago that had said um, college is where you go to learn what you want to know. And graduate school is where you go to realize how much there is to know. So, and I thought, you I know, that, that. that that's uh, carried me a long way in understanding how the educational system works. My my daughter is studying uh, uh, multicultural studies and uh, interracial studies and uh, is getting her master's degree and finds, too, that you talk about the Austro-Hungarian model, that at least in Wisconsin, there's also an agrarian model or, you know, emphasis to it that is white male oriented. And that part of it is where she's really seeing the systematic issues that need to be confronted and really dealt with in a way that, you know, maybe makes white people in Florida uncomfortable, you know? Well, I, I think part of it is too, like, we've tried to, and I don't know how you do this at scale, but like, I think the best education is individualized. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and I think if we can figure out how to, like, I've been in some great programs where they give you a course book. 
somebody walks around and helps each person with their course book and answers their questions when they need it. Like, and, and I think people can get a lot out of having more individualized education. I just think, cause here's the thing you have to look at, right? Like we, I'm in New Jersey, right? The North part of New Jersey is very agrarian. The central part of New Jersey is very, um, very city-like. And, you know, it's, you know, there are different, more races than there are in Northern New Jersey. And then you go to Southern New Jersey and there's nobody there. So like, <laughs> except, except the beach for the summer. Okay. But like, so like how people learn and what they learn and, and the methods and what they learn and things is so different. Right. And I think to say like, okay, so this model works in Northern New Jersey, it's going to work in central and Southern, or this model works in New Jersey, let's stick it in Wisconsin. Right. And that's why I think right. the thing that's tough is like, I think even having like a, like a national strategy for education can be tough because even states are different within states are different. Mm -hmm. I, I think Communities are different. Communities are yeah, different. I yeah. think I think we do have to have some standards, right? Because people should be able to like all speak English together. That's pretty important, and, and you know, use the same math. But I think at the same time, communities are so different. Our problem is much bigger than we think. Yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, our problem yeah. is much bigger than what we think it is. Yeah. Well, and when you can't even have a decent conversation with someone without it mm -hmm. turning into an argument. Um, my, my son has noted to me that, you know, it's interesting to him to have conversations with people and they get to a point where they have not thought it through well enough to say the things that they're arguing. And they don't, they are I'm really not even sure. I think that they, they believe they've just identified with something and are so down that rabbit hole that they can't come out anymore, but they'll just get to a point where like, Oh, F you man, F you. So it's like that. That's, that's when you know you won the argument, by the way, when the other person yells, <laughs> swears, or calls you a name, you know, you've won. Exactly. It's like, they can't do anything more except F you and get out of it. Right. So, so my, my favorite, my favorite meme is, um, I saw this, this meme and it was like one of the guys from the TV show Yellowstone. Okay. And the meme was, um, I know I was losing. I know I lost the argument ten minutes ago. Now I'm just trying to piss you off. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems to be the main uh, thing going on with a lot of our politicians today, right? It's just I'm yeah. just gonna, you know, we'll find the thing, the trigger thing that's gonna make you go nuts, and then I'll watch you disintegrate. Um, you know, it's like a business technique or strategy almost. So hey, I don't understand it, man. When it's like there, there's um, when you look at it, like. I don't care what side of the fence you're on. Iron should sharpen iron, right? Mm -hmm. Like we should have good ideas that make somebody else's ideas have to be better. And the best idea should win because it's better. Right. And I think we've just gotten to a point where it's like, you're a liberal or you're a Republican. Well, you're this, or you're that, or you're, and it's like, guys, like, come on, is this third grade? Like what's going on here? Right. Right. I mean, you sit back and say, uh, that is not what defines me. You know, I, yes. I think another thing I, I read in your uh, materials too, is that, that idea of, I don't know what I am really, you know, I mean, I, I think you and I share that too, that on a, a financial side or the, the fiscal side, I'm very conservative, but on virtually every other issue, I'm very socially, educationally, artistic. You know, I, I think there are so many things in that realm that will make us a better society. And my, so then the big problem I have is, okay, well, how do we pay for it? And who's paying for it? And how do we, you know, how do we get there? Um, and it's I'm difficult. I'm politically homeless, man. I'm politically <laughs> homeless because I look at it and I'm, I'm, I'm fiscally very conservative. Yeah. But yeah. I'm, so, I'm, I'm extremely liberal socially. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like, right. Many of my friends are, 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 would consider themselves pro-life, but I'm pro-choice within reason, right? Like right. I think it should be safe, safe, legal, and rare, but like at the same time, other people are like, that's crazy. And I'm like, socially, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty liberal. Right. Well, and, and you know, you get into any of those arguments too, and it's like, well, what, what is the alternative? When you say you can't, we know that that doesn't work. 
right? It just, it doesn't work. So what do you do then? Uh, you know, it's like you're assuming that people are all going to believe what you believe and just get in line and say, no, no, that doesn't, on a human level, that doesn't work. Come on. What about, um, we're going to run out of time looking at this. It's already uh, 10 minutes before <laughs> you have to go. This has been an awesome conversation, so, though, man. I've really enjoyed it. Well, maybe we can find a time to come back around, too. That would be great. So I've already done that with a couple of the guests you sent my way. So you would not be the first one to do that. So, But <laughs> let's talk a little bit about leadership because you're leading people. You're trying to lead people to a better place. Right. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're going into a forum and hey, I absolutely agree with you. The podcast format has allowed um, a, a generational, uh, uh, you know, a, a tectonic shift in how people have conversations because it's demonstrating uh, good conversations, I hope, you know, in most cases, unless they're, you know, pundits that are just arguing a point of view and that's all they're doing. But when you've interviewed some of the people you have, some high powered people, are there, I, I think there are principles of leadership that you've alluded to that you found. What, what does that look like for someone that wants to know what a good leader is and stops following the ones that are bad leaders, but just have big mouths? Well, there's, um, so I, I had a, an interview with uh, David Petraeus, um, who was a four-star general, uh, led central command for a while. And then he was the CIA director for, for a bit. And um, one of the things that he said, um, he was talking about, um, Gosh, when he was just a just a, a new officer, his his uh, his kind of higher higher officer at that time, I don't remember his rank, okay. um, but he was saying that the thing that was really interesting about him is when you're in the military, like typically your ego is bigger than the number of medals in your chest, which most of them don't have a chest big enough to pin all the medals they have on. Yeah, and he said the thing that was really cool about this guy, um, his name was Jack, and I don't remember his last name, so I apologize, General Petraeus, that I'm forgetting. But he said the thing that was really cool about him is he had no ego for the entire chest of medals he should have had. He didn't even wear most of his medals half the time because he thought it was kind of like ridiculous to show off. And he said that because he approached these situations where it wasn't like, look at me, I'm the leader, look how important I am, people were more willing to follow him when he demanded something. Like if he wanted a drink, he wouldn't say, hey, officer, come over here and get me a drink. He would get himself a drink. Or, you know, he wanted a cigarette, he'd get himself a cigarette. And I think when you're looking at leadership, people want to follow somebody that will work just as hard as them and Mm -hmm. will – you know, it's, it's from the book Art of War. Like people will follow somebody that will that will work just as hard as they will and not ask them to do anything they wouldn't be willing to do themselves. Sure. And I think to me, that's what it really comes down to. And that's what good leadership is. It's not like, you know, I'm the leader, follow me. It's, you know, we're going to do this. You know, I will go through it with you. Um, and, you know, I will take as much responsibility as I can because I am responsible for this group. But to me, that's what a really good leader is. Um, and that was one of the things I learned from General Petraeus. So do you, when you're being the head of an organization like you are, do you find yourself wanting to surround yourself with other leaders or just better followers? I mean, do you want people that are going head to head with you and butting you about better ideas? Or do, would you rather have people that are like, okay, chief, here I go. I'm going to do it. So early on, I wanted followers and I found that didn't, doesn't work and it doesn't build an organization. So what I ended up doing is finding people that, um, you know, frankly, should be running another company. You know what I mean? Like, and people having people like that in your business will help you build an amazing business. Now, the thing you have to do is continue to create opportunities for them and continue to give them opportunities to grow and, and to do other things or they're going to leave you. Sure. But like to me that you're going to build the best organization with people um, that are going to kind of make you be like, man, I'm glad they're on my team. 
Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, yeah. like having yeah. people like that on your team. Yeah. Well, I think of, um, I think it's uh, Lencioni, Patrick Lencioni talks about having people that you, you have that sort of, uh, you know, conversation, you get all the good ideas, all the best ideas out on the table. And then at the point where you have to make a decision to move forward, that there's somebody there that says, folks, I hear everything that people are saying. There's such wonderful ideas, such, you know, great activities. Uh, some of you are not going to agree with the decision that I'm going to make, but somebody's got to make the decision. So I'm, I'm going to have to do that. I hope you'll trust me and come along, you know, as we try this as a, a potential solution to the, the issue. Right. Yeah. So are, do you find that there are certain kinds of people you can't work with that you can't lead? What does that look like? To me, I really struggle with people that want other people to feel sorry for them. And it's a personality type, man. Like I've, it, you, it, it's hard to inspire people like that. It's hard to push people like that because they'll crack. Um, like I just, I found that I'm somebody that I'm intense. I ask a lot. I demand a lot, but I'm also going to give a lot. Sure. And it's, it's hard to, to me to, to lead people that are kind of like a, a wet blanket, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think only, of- only, only Linus can lead those people. Yeah. <laughs> Well, again, Mark Twain, right? He says the weakest of all weak things is a virtue that's not been tested by fire. And that uh, that always struck me as the issue with, you know, I come from a Ju- Judeo-Christian uh, background as well. And uh, Christians and churches that I had been a part of that would face some horrible situation. You know, a child died or, or uh, you know, a whole bunch of calamities happened in their, you know, just economic uh, situation. And they, the ones that had been through adversity, you know, they, they said, okay, well, this has happened. I got to figure out a way to get by. We're going to keep on working and get past it. And the people that had never faced that were just stuck going, why? Yeah. Why did this happen to me? I don't understand. A loving God would do this to me. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, God's a whole lot more interested in your character than he is in your circumstance. So yes. um, do you find there were circumstances in your life that, I mean, you you went through some hardship. You had some times in your life where you yeah. tried things that failed miserably and then tried another thing and it failed miserably. What kept you going? Well, I think the, the big thing is realizing... Um, Cause you have to go back. I think a lot of people look at this and it's like that, that scene in Caddyshack where it's raining and the, the, the priest puts his up his golf club up and gets struck by lightning after he just curses God. I think often we have to look at it and say, yes, there, you know, there is a higher power and that higher power gives us free will. It's, it's within, it's within our means. What do we do with that? And I think often it's looking at a situation saying, okay, well, I, you know, I really screwed the pooch there. What can I do about it? Yeah. So, so I think that it's, I've, I've had some tough things happen, man. Like I've almost lost a parent. I got last rights myself. I, you know, had some extreme business failures. I've had times that I couldn't make payroll and I've had to figure out how to pay that and things like that. So right. it's, you look at that situation and you say, how can I learn from it? What policy can I put in place and never do it again? But I think often people want to say, well, this happened to me or, you know, like, you know, God let this happen to me. And they're like, no, man, he gives you free will. It's, it's your ability to make it go right. You know, or you're just like that priest in Caddyshack getting struck by lightning. Do you find yourself now, given all that, looking forward to adversity, or is it just you accept it when it happens? Um, 
I think when it happens, you have to look at it for the opportunity in it. But I think at the same time, you're a little bit of a masochist if you want it to happen all the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, you know, it's weird because when you, you when you embrace in adversity, you almost feel like you should have this sense of, okay, bring it, you know? Uh, you and know, yet like, you, I cannot wait till the next nest of machine gunners shows up on my way to the grocery store. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. no, man, like, I'm going to embrace it when it shows up and figure out how it can be better for right. it. I'm not going to go out there looking for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do not, you know, ask for it, dude. Yeah. I, I get it. I did that early on my life i i thought you know okay bring it i will take it yeah yeah and then i'm like what did what was i thinking so i was in my like 20s and thought yeah and then it's like yeah no you have no idea what you're asking for so just shut up it's you you look at it and you're like okay so like it's work smarter and work or or work harder right like you can work smarter and work better within the confines and, and realize you know how can i learn from this but i don't think necessarily always just working hard is the answer great Folks, my guest today has been Jeremy Ryan Slate. Uh, he is one of the people that I love talking with. The Command Your Brand, your organization is sent my way because the conversation shouldn't end. You don't want it to end. Uh, so thank you so much for being a part of that kind of conversation with me today. So uh, Jeremy is a podcast and media expert. So if you need to, if you've got a podcast and you're listening to this, uh, you need to talk with the folks that command your brand because they do an excellent job of, of, uh, of curating, uh, interesting guests that will fit your, your, uh, slate. <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't resist. <laughs> but thank you, Jeremy. You take care of yourself. All right. Hey, thank you so much for having me, man. Hope to talk to you again sometime. And we've been talking here on frame of reference, Sauk County and beyond tune in next week. Who knows who we'll have? That's going to be my adventure in potentially adversity and potentially wonderment. So take care.